Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on Off Talk Empire, the thing about having a job and being a coach is you want to be sure that you are one and be a coach you have to have an active coaching job and if some of those types of things aren't the case then you're not gonna what happens is that you don't coach the team anymore and then you're no longer a coach and then that makes it you know really difficult to coach your team today on off tackle empire your source for big game talk it's off tackle empire Welcome back to Off Tackle Empire, the podcast that really, really needs to talk about coach firings in the Big Ten, because we are, after all, the only Big Ten podcast that's willing to cover stories this niche. We were very on top of it in the offseason. We all told you, Paul Christ, hot seat for sure, expect a firing by the first week of October at the latest if there's not an obvious turnaround in the direction of the Badger program on and off the field. We call it first. Everybody saw this coming. Actually, it was just a matter of when. Actually, Andrew, we did call this first several years ago when we kept insisting that this was going to be the year that they started to fall off, and then it never was. So we gave up and said, okay, fine. I guess they'll be fine. They always are. <laughs> yeah, and it is a little bit of a decision out of left field. The reaction has been kind of mixed, of course. The one tweet that I saw from a player is from Braylon Allen indicating anyone who wants Coach Vaughn is not part of this team, which ahead of time I was like, you know, the first impression of that is, okay, sure, obviously, circling the wagons. Everyone who was saying bad stuff about Coach and Vaughn him out is outside of this locker room. Our enemies are outside and we're fine. Then I realized, actually, that could be aimed as an internal shot, as... Boy, if there are people in this locker room who don't want Coach to be coach anymore, you're not part of this team. I don't know how to read that, but it could be either way. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a coach fired where they don't circle the wagons for him. At least publicly, because yes, the culture around football is very much, if you speak out against the team in any meaningful public way, you're on your way out. Um, that's like, that's Antonio Brown behavior, notwithstanding like what you then later do in a public pool. Um but no, you're, you're never going to see a guy actually voice his opinion. Like, no, it, it's laughable to think, at least right in the moment. Like, think, for example, about how bad things were with Urban Meyer in Jacksonville. That was considered such a bonkers outlier because players had the audacity to kind of, like, gossip with players on other teams. Like, man, this really isn't going well. Get me the hell out of here. Like, that was considered an unfathomable anomaly of a situation in terms of locker room chemistry and it was but yeah for a coach and then in the college context where even with greater player empowerment and movement and everything that you've gotten over the last several years 
still very much a subservient position. Still a lot of power held by the coaching staff. And so, yeah, it obviously, no one's, if, if any of the players in Wisconsin's locker room felt differently and did want a change at the top, they sure aren't going to say so. So, yes, uh, we were just so excited to get to this story because I can't believe that we've lost two Big Ten coaches and it is Monday, October 3rd, as we're recording this for Off Tackle Empire, which for the moment is still an active SB Nation blog. I am Steve Braun. I go by Thumpasaurus. I'm a huge Illini fan, and I cackled like the Joker as soon as they, as soon as Big Ten Network decided they needed to show all of Wisconsin's student section doing jump around, losing by Illinois at home by 21 points. It's a Brett Bielema, no less. Happy Brett Bielema Day, by the way. What a celebrate! It, it, the post game interview, he was he he was so relieved and like satisfied, and that's like the flip the flip side of this coin is that for everyone who is in a position that has gotten stale and doesn't work. There is somebody who is flourishing. And and just, like, imagine the circuitous arc that Bielema took here where, was it roughly 10 years ago now, he leaves the Wisconsin job abruptly after a great period of success for basically a lateral move that had some initial, some initial signs of promise but fizzled out pretty quickly. He wanders in the desert. He's like changing the trash can in Bill Belichick's office or whatever Belichick makes those guys do. And then gets the job at Illinois, which at the time, the worst program in the Big Ten, depending on what you think of Rutgers. Well, that was Chris Fashwalkers. It's right there. Touch that Illinois. No, at the time, at the time, Greg Schiano had Rutgers competitive in every game of 2020, basically. That's true. I got another timeline here. So, anyway. So, yeah, um, we were just... In that random game at the end of 2020, they made us play against Penn State for God knows what reason. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, that's Andrew Krzyzewski, and we have to introduce our Wind Fight Tri Brewster of the Week, which is New Holland's Ichabod Pumpkin Ale. Uh, due, of course, to the fate of our protagonist, Ichabod Crane, played here by former Wisconsin coach Paul Christ, who rode off into the night, pursued by the Headless Horseman, and the last anybody heard of him, the Headless Horseman threw a big orange thing at him, and he was never seen again. So in case you are living under a, a, a rock, or you get your Big Ten news exclusively from our podcast, the Fighting Illini went to Camp Randall in Wisconsin and dismantled the Badgers 34-10 thanks to uh, several turnovers, uh, in deep in Wisconsin territory, but also Wisconsin's complete inability to run the ball. Uh, the next day, Wisconsin fired Paul Christ with a 67-26 and 26 overall record in what to outside observers would seem to be a shocking development, especially considering that, and we'll get to this, it seems like it's the new normal now, but in years past, this has not been the time that you fire a coach that's done that well. No, this is maybe a new paradigm in the coaching atmosphere, if that's the It word. feels like the first half of the season is now prime coach firing season because we've had... Well, Chris is now the fifth Power 5 coach. Not named Brian Harson to be coached. To get fired who went, who went in this year. as a coach that a lot of people thought could be fired by week two, and somehow he's still alive despite just squandering a two-score lead to LSU. And five other coaches, including two in the historically conservative Big Ten, have been sent packing. And you cannot first... tell me that Brian Harson, who I, I discussed this with my uh, my brother-in-law, who's a deep Texas fan, uh, uh, deeply incompatible with the SEC in every possible way. Um, 
I didn't realize all of the Christian scientist stuff and how deeply it impacted his treatment of, like, medical science and stuff and medicine, which is something that I, I just don't see how you can continue to do in the SEC. Well, the rural Pacific Northwest is a place. It's a very different place than most people think of the West Coast because it's not Seattle. If you're not from Seattle and you're from that part of the world, there are some folks who are kind of out there. We'll leave it at that. But in any case, Brian Harsons and somehow survived, but five Power 5 coaches have been fired in the first month of the season. I'll be shocked if that many are fired in the last week of the season, like in and after the last week of the season. There won't be any left worth firing. Exactly. I mean, partially because that's a lot of coaches to be fired, but partially because who else is going to do it now? I mean, I was, I was talking with well, uh, and- White Speed Receiver earlier about he feels that just because there's always a wild card, the Big Ten's not done this year. It's just not clear who it's going to be. There's, I mean, if things go wrong at the right place, who's to say Tom Allen won't get the ass? Yeah, so he brought up, like, a theoretical Maryland, not actual Maryland who's doing okay, but you know what I mean? A theoretical Maryland could say, eh, fuck it, we're going to go for a bigger fish. Yeah, well, and it's the thing is, the it used to be that you had to swallow a couple years of a coach even if you didn't think he was the guy. Because the buyouts were prohibitive. You couldn't get enough booster money to get it. Well, now the schools have this network money. So, in some cases, they don't even need to go to the boosters. The network money is escalating way faster than the buyout money is escalating. Which means, by the way, the next couple cycles of coaching contracts, you can expect to see buyouts north of 25 or $30 million. That's going to be what these coaches are going to view as security because now... They're going to pay Paul Christ over $16 million to stop coaching. He was 41 games over 500 at Wisconsin. However, he was one game behind Brett Bielema for the second most in yeah. Badgers history. Yeah. Had he won the game, he would, in fact, be tied. But instead, Illinois went in and got their first win at in Madison in 20 years. And again, Wisconsin gained a net of two rushing yards. So... There was, I, yeah, I somehow survived and got a win in the OTE League, despite getting 0.2 points from Braylon Allen, who I paid a quarter of my auction budget to. So there were two parts of this game. One part of the game was when Wisconsin had a couple of scripted drives early, and the other part of the game was the rest of the game. This is something that we talked about last week, but then I kind of forgot about a little bit. <laughs> because... I didn't think about it because Maryland did the same thing. It didn't matter because Michigan State's so disjointed that you don't have to play a good game against them to win. But I was stunned to see Graham Mertz going 7 for 8 to start the game. Granted, his incompletion was an interception that set up Illinois at the Wisconsin like 15 or something. But it was 10 to 7 Wisconsin. And then the Illini scored uh, 27 straight points. And, you know, of course just because I'm trained to never see a thing like this is actually happening, uh, I just started looking for signs that some that the game was going to turn around. Surely it's not going to continue to be like this. But no, Graham Mertz never found anything. Uh, the offense kind of never got going. It dawned on me that this was actually going to happen. Illinois went to 4-1. and one, But the way that that happened is kind of a microcosm of what has happened to Paul Chris Wisconsin. Because the defense actually, despite the score... The defense held up fairly well. Tommy DeVito was 18 for 24, only got 167 yards. Illinois had 137 rushing yards. They held Chase Brown in check outside of one long run. Um, But Wisconsin turned the ball over a bunch, only got 208 yards 
but two rushing yards. See, Wisconsin's offense and all of its various iterations and evolutions, every wrinkle that Paul Chris has been able to add to it has been predicated on the fact that Wisconsin can run the ball between the tackles. That's been the foundational truth that has allowed them to, you know, then make the passing game happen because everybody's got to commit to stopping them between the tackles because they can run it. The passing game and gadget plays, you know, receivers, screens, and sweeps and stuff. And this is eminently no longer true. Not ju- Yeah, it's not just that they can run it a little bit inside the way Minnesota does. It's that if you don't put eight or nine guys in the box, they would run it for seven, eight, ten yards at a clip all game and would be perfectly happy to just keep doing that. So you had no choice but to load the box and then all their tight ends and fullbacks just need a crease to get open. Their noodle arm quarterbacks can make those intermediate throws, move it down the field against you. And because they took up so much time holding the ball with their offense, your own offense would then be under immense pressure to do the same. And if you couldn't, your defense goes right back on the field and then they hold the ball for another seven or eight minutes. So yeah, that's been what they've done here. It's difficult to identify, but it really there's no other word for it, I don't think, than it's gone stale because... Chris was the offensive coordinator there under Bielema. He then went and did pretty similar things at Pitt before coming back. They still have Bob Bostad, the offensive line coach, who created some legendary offensive lines at Wisconsin. Uh, Joe Rudolph is no longer in the picture, but he was Chris's first offensive coordinator. They still had some of the same brain trust. and you know, Bob Ingram was a new coordinator, but Chris is an offensive guy by trade. So the thought is, look... A couple of the key pieces here that have been making this thing go at Wisconsin for a long time are still around. Why isn't this working? Well, it's not working for the same reason that things stop working for a lot of coaches who are in the same place for too long. If they have success with something, they come to think that that is an inherently superior way to play. They refuse to change and refuse to understand that once an opponent has 10 years of film on you, they'll figure out a way to stop what you like to do. Like it, you know. The game just continues to evolve. Um, I mean, case in point, you look at the very Wisconsin coach that, uh, you know, that you kind of think of when, you know, one of the Wisconsin coaches that you think of when you remember, you know, running backs getting 30 carries for 240 yards, Brett Bielema. Now, yes, Chase Brown had 25 carries for 129, but he, last year, saw that a similar approach, pounding the ball between the tackles, and then using the pass only as a last resort was not working. He got the offensive coordinator from UTSA, who he'd worked with before. But there's a little there, you know. There's more elements at work to this rushing game than what was happening last year. It's it's more modern, and you know, on the other side, you have 15 attempts for Kez Melisi and Braylon Allen for a total of 18 yards. Yeah, so the other thing that I've seen and heard commented on a lot is that the recruiting is a problem, the recruiting has fallen off, what are we going to do about the recruiting? So that's the kind of decision that I think informs a hiring or firing choice at the end of a year if you've unexpectedly gone 5-7 and or something. If you've had a sudden setback on the field and the recruiting is bad, I think you at least have to let it play out over a whole season for that to be a decisive factor because, all right, so here's the thing. The 2022 class, the freshmen this year, uh, represented the 44th composite class in the country. That's pretty bad for the Big Ten. 
Um, and this year's class, or next year's class, rather, the 23 class, is not off to a good start. They're outside the top 50. They don't have any players in the top 500 nationally committed. So, yes, it is true that recruiting is not going well right now. And you can probably trace that to when Michigan State poached Saeed Khalif a month, year and a half ago, and Wisconsin did not replace him until very recently. So, because it's interesting, a few years ago we were talking about Wisconsin elevating their recruiting profile right, with that's... some blue-chip prospects such as Nolan Rucci on the offensive line, Graham Mertz, the blue-chip prospect at quarterback. Yeah. Uh, they had had two five-star offensive tackle recruits a few years back. Yeah. And we were just talking about their recruiting profile being boosted. So it feels like Wisconsin came into this season, you know, or at least their athletic director came into this season thinking... There's talents on hand for this team to be better than it is. Yeah. But not so let's is... see if this guy can yeah. still coach. And I guess he concluded after the last three games that no, they cannot. Because, well, the three losses that they had. Right. Um, because, yeah, the Washington State, Washington State should not have been able to so thoroughly stifle the Wisconsin offense. The defense continues to be good. But as we've seen... In the past, you, you can only make a good defense do so much work before you can't win games anymore. Yeah, and so we mentioned that these, you know, they have these higher-ranked players. Uh, Tittman is the starting center now. Logan Brown, I don't think, is factored into the playing group, even with a couple of injuries. And then it was really it was the 2021 class that was, I think, number 16 or 18, something like that in the country. And very few of those guys were making impacts yet. And so the recruiting has taken a bit of a nosedive really because of mismanagement of the staff by Paul Chris. It's one thing to let a recruiting coordinator go if you don't have the resources to pay him. And maybe that's the biggest reason was that Wisconsin notoriously cheap chose not to give Chris the resources to retain a very important recruiter, but then Chris didn't help himself by not filling that position. So if that's how you're going to do it, if you're going to do what D'Antonio did after the 2016 disaster, in other words, and decide, I don't need these big, fancy all-stars, all-star recruits. I'll, I know how to coach them up better than everybody else does anyway. you got to be Kirk Ferentz if you're going to make that work. The fact is, ever since Urban Meyer came into the Big Ten, uh, there really are not those kind of gentlemen's agreements anymore. That's been gone for 10 years. Yeah. So, yeah. Somebody else can just swipe one of your most valuable coaches away. They can do it in a way you think is underhanded. But guess what? This is this is the top level of college football now, basically. This ain't the fucking Euchre game down at the fish fry, fellas. Yep, this precisely. Is, everybody involved here is getting paid ten figures. And when somebody does that to you, then you got to go and you got to find some way to make up for it. Yeah. You got to do it fast because everybody else is out there recruiting right now. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, that's about all we can say for Wisconsin. They are last place in the Big Ten West right now because everybody else is one and one. Sure, right. So that's the thing is, it's, they're a game, they're, they're, well, two games, a game in the lost column as well, um, behind what's otherwise a six-way tie in a division that is actually still very wide open. You know, that's the crazy thing is, if Wisconsin steadies the ship and they find a way for this playbook to actually make use of the talent they have, they could still win the division. <laughs> Although, you know what else is true? Your prediction for Nebraska <laughs> was also still alive. Sure it is. Sure. <laughs> sure. 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 Technically it is. Yes. Okay. Sure. Fine. Yeah, that's fun. All right. Fun. We're all, we're all having fun. We're all having a great time. 
Uh, but man, where I was going with the, the observation about now. that they can still win the division is interim coach Jim Leonard, I think is part of the equation for why you fire Chris now. Um, a rising star in the defensive coordinator ranks. A guy we've said is going to be a head coach someday. And lo and behold, here we are. Um, I think part of the reason that Chris McIntosh, the Wisconsin AD, is willing to pull the trigger on a guy with the tent, with the track record and the accomplishments that Paul Christ has is that he's got an in-house candidate that he can give a meaningful trial period to. And there's also the fact that Wisconsin is perhaps uniquely well-positioned with ties to a lot of other coaches that make sense. Because if you have any reservations at all about Jim Leonard, you can certainly give a call to Dave Aranda. You can certainly give a call to Lance Leipold, although I think he's going to have a long line. And he may not be willing to leave Kansas after two years. Um, And then there's also the connection to Dave Doran. You could bring him in. Um, So Wisconsin has pretty good options in terms of guys who would make some sense to them. Um, And of course, the in-house candidate, vastly superior to a typical interim in that, yeah, he's a guy who was... I have to think sooner or later going to get a shot at the head coaching job anyway. And that's kind of been the meta discussion is this guy is going to be a head coach. Wisconsin's got to hold on to him. So, so now we're going to see how he's going to do as a head coach. Um, And it's it's a determination basically that yes, the possible upside with Leonard is enough that you're willing to gamble on losing what you have with Chris, which again, admittedly the last couple of years has started to look pretty stale. And, and for Illinois, all I can say is that it's happening Hey, man, enough people talking about they don't believe Illinois. We got a football team. <laughs> I'm going to the next two games where if they win one of them, uh, I'll be over the moon because, hey, look, right now, when you look at all of the things that have happened in pursuit of the throne, this is not the Big Ten West. It's the Big Ten Westeros, baby. You either lose or you, you either win or you die. Some Game of Thrones shit going on. The question is this, is failing to win the Big Ten West this year a fireable offense? Two, count them, two programs think, yes, it is. Are we really going to see Kirk Ferentz and Pat Fitzgerald both get axed for losing to Illinois in the same season? Is that even possible? If, 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 if Stop! Northern, I can only get so erect. If Northwestern doesn't win another game the rest of the year, which they very well may not. No, they'll give him the ultimatum about, you know, get your house in order or we're going to really, really, really start thinking about limiting your TV time, young man. <laughs> Gonna limit his screen time, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, any other thoughts about that game before we move on? Big time Tommy is the best goal line back in the conference. We discovered the quarterback sneak, apparently, during the course of the game and (laughs) ran it three times from the one for touchdowns. Uh, Dude's the best quarterback I've seen at Illinois since Nathan Shieldhouse because he's he's got the balls to throw it over the middle. (laughs) I mean, what else can I say about that, man? Um, Big joke Saturday. Fox is no longer even burying the lead. They announced Michigan-Penn State is also going to be a big noon game, which will mean... Four Michigan games in a row are the big Fox game of the week. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Could you at least pretend to care about anything other than the biggest brand you can get your hands on? What an absolute joke. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. I mean, that's got to be. I mean, if you're a Michigan fan, you got to be over the moon because apparently they're saying Michigan's bigger than Ohio State now. 
Yeah, it also means that your your biggest best friend, Joel Quatt, calls every single one of your games. Must be nice to have basically a, a, a friendlier announcer than your own radio broadcast. God, Call if they'd ever beaten Urban Meyer one time, it would be great for them to have to bring Urban Meyer around to every Michigan game. <laughs> but unfortunately, there is no such blemish on his resume, so he can still kind of continue to do that like smug, like, eyes half open smirk that he's got yeah and also continue to use the fox staff to prevent kids from holding up mean signs about him he should well like what a again like we've talked about this before but again what a tiny petty man because all you have to do is just like just you've got command of the screens like just have him put up like i'm sorry let's let's put up the results of every game i ever coach against all right that's a win that's another win. That's another win. That's no- I don't see any L's up here. You little bit, and I just turn and face the crowd. You little bitches. Who had that sign? Like he could have so much fun with it. He's a man incapable of fun. Um, anyway, twenty-seven to the Wolverines, fourteen to the Hawkeyes. Gave up fourteen entire points to the Iowa Hawkeyes offense. The entire defensive staff must be fired immediately. Many with fantasy interests were very disappointed by the fourth quarter of the Michigan Wolverines, who have been known to rotate heavily when they're. When they have a lead that is insurmountable, although feels like they could have started that at 10 nothing, does it not? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the, the strain that Iowa's offense puts on their defense is just, it like, again, in the past, I have thought that I've seen some shit with Michigan State's offense. 2012, 2018, 2019, those were some bad offenses, such that the defense, it was like, man, you get, you're counting on the defense to hold the opponent to 14 points, 10 points to have any chance of win. Iowa's counting on their defense to shut out the opponent damn near every game to have a chance to win. And that they even got to 14, as you said, is only because there was a little bit of let-up later in the game. Um, well, I mean, I'm looking at the drives, and the only play, or the only drive in the, like, yeah, the only drive in the first half for Iowa that was longer than 15 yards had two 10-yard penalties by Michigan on it. Yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for negatives from the Michigan perspective, the box score for J.J. McCarthy is a little underwhelming. But look, that's also dictated by game script here, right? This Iowa secondary is still very good. Everybody's talking about how shitty the Iowa offense is. The secondary for Iowa is... Their whole defense is damn good. And so it's... We've always said in the past, like... Every time Iowa goes into this get into a game and they get like four or five interceptions, it's like, how do they hypnotize opposing players into making the throws that they want you to make? Well, Michigan at least did not fall for that. Yeah, this was fair. the appropriate game script yeah. to play Iowa because what can they do to you if you can get first downs on the ground? Yeah, they were they were patient with a run game that did not have the usual production it does. Because again, Iowa's front six slash seven isn't going to let you do that. Um, but they stuck with their best player who at least in terms of non-offensive linemen, I think is Blake Corum. I think it's very hard to compare, like, right guard Zach Zinter with Corum. I think Zinter is probably the better player, but they basically play different sports. So uh, Iowa had 55 offensive snaps. What, is it, what else is there to say about it? Um, as far as Michigan goes, yeah, it's another step forward. I still don't quite, I mean, you know, I'll put it this way. The Penn State game, I think, is the first of the interesting games in the East where there is now the clear troika at the top of the teams that people claim are going to be at the top every year, but it usually doesn't actually work out that way. So Michigan-Penn State coming up over the horizon is kind of be the, going to be the shape determiner of who is it that actually gets to throw their best punch at Ohio State and have it mean something. 
Well, and for Iowa, I'll touch on one more thing. The the offense kind of playing, you know, with good field position to put their first points on the board. Then the defense forced a punt, and the offense, starting at their own 17, went deep into Michigan territory, down two scores with a chance to, with a touchdown, bring it to within one score, make it a real competitive game again. And on fourth and two at the Michigan six, Spencer Petrus threw it one yard short of the sticks. On what, fourth and two, how do you middle that to Sam Laporta, who's like six foot seven and an NFL tight end? That should be impossible, but he still found a way to do it. It's just, it's it's remarkable. It, uh, the, the the ridiculous thing is, look at Spencer Petrus's line: twenty one for thirty one for two hundred forty six yards, one touchdown, no picks. It was completely meaningless. Yeah, well, it, again, like almost entirely empty calories. Totally unwilling to risk the important throw when it needed to be made. So. Yeah, it yards that Michigan's like, all right, fine. Like, have a couple first downs. You're not going to complete any big plays. So when the field compacts, you are no threat at all. See you in Champagne, Spencer. Oh, it's going to be funny. Um, where I talked about Wisconsin. Okay, so. Well, yes, we did receive some mild criticism last week because we did not spend enough time talking about a program that really has exceeded everybody's expectations over the last uh, five or so years. It's about time that we slow things down, head up north, talk about the Gophers. Well, when you look at this this team, it's about, it's about a culture. And one of the things inherent in this culture is they play stifling defense because they all have a belief in the common goal that they all share. And they did, in fact, get three turnovers against the Boilermakers. I hear some of you out there asking, well, how many turnovers did the Gophers have themselves? It's not important. That's not what we're here to talk about. That's not relevant to the mission. That's not... uh, I don't know why you need to be bringing things like that up. I don't know why you're trying to put a negative spin on this when we're just out here trying to row our boat, all right? So the important thing to remember here is Purdue's basically running the NFL offense. A lot of excitement, a lot of throwing the ball all over the yard. A lot of hullabaloo, really, but what did our Gophers go out there and do? Got out there, contained them well below their season average, throwing the ball. And they threw for more yards than the Boilermakers did. They threw for 257 yards. Well, Purdue under 200 through the air. That's incredible. It was an impressive performance by Tanner Morgan. Yeah, you know, in terms of the number of passes he threw, it's a a tiring day. He's going to be feeling that in his shoulder tomorrow. And you know... The Gophers are first place in the Big Ten West. They'll have a bye week to rest up, and boy, are they going to compete in Champaign? You betcha. I noticed some of you out there are seeming to pause like you're expecting us to say something else. I don't know what else you'd want us to tell, to tell you about from this game. That's just negativity, and we're not going to hear it. PJ's here to stay. He's got a message that these guys believe in, and uh, we're both. There's nothing else to talk about. Boy, the injury to Ivorham... It's I, almost like their offense isn't things. any fucking good, and somebody <laughs> called that even after what they did against Michigan State because that's the worst defense in the country. The big play, it's almost like somebody called it. And if you want to say, well, they were missing their leading receiver, which will be the case for the rest of the year, it has been the case his whole career. The guy can't stay healthy. I'm sorry. And they're also missing Mohamed Ibrahim. Okay, Purdue's also missing Brock Thompson. They're also missing King Doru. They had two walk-ons as the only running backs who carried the ball for them. And look at what Devin Mockaby did, man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, it, whatever happened to Minnesota having two and having a pair and a spare, right? Last year they're running out freshmen who have no problem standing in and carrying forth. No. Maybe it just has to be said that Purdue's defense was up to the task. Well, and I do recall a lot of comments when half the running back room transferred. No, we're so stacked, we're not even going to miss those guys. miss those guys. And now Ibrahim gets hurt, and it's like, oh, yeah. Williams and Potts have been career backups for a reason. So the other thing is Purdue, as we maintained since last year, has really turned things around on defense. They did... You know, I mean, they allowed 35 to Penn State, but their offense kept putting them in posi- in situations where they had to defend more than they should have. Yeah. Um, Purdue has, you know, as as I said last week, if Purdue can win this game, then suddenly everything's back on the table. And that's true. Yeah. Tone setters for the defense for Purdue have very much become the secondary. Even, I mean, I was sure that missing Marvin Grant, they were going to have a big problem, but Allen and Jefferson have an excellent... Uh, as safeties, getting their hands on every interception opportunity that comes their way. Trice is a true number one corner, reliably breaks up passes targeting his receiver in big downs. Um, yeah, it, their defense overall, it's again, no individual star to quite the level of Carl Loftus last year. By the way, Carl Loftus looked great playing for the Chiefs yesterday. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's overall as a unit, probably better than they were last year despite lacking the star power. Um, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I found that, uh, three total tackles and two solo tackles were made by Purdue linebacker Scotty Humpich, and I couldn't stop laughing. Um, uh, <laughs> any case, yeah. um, Tanner Morgan got picked off three times through new, through no touchdowns. That's what happens when he has to throw the ball. He's not good. Yeah. So Minnesota was able to tie the game up at 10 apiece he's, in the third he's quarter. Spencer Petrus normally with a running game. No, he's Spencer Petrus' dad. Right, Spencer Petrus' great uncle, who still plays. Um, Purdue got a field goal and then forced a three and out with a negative one yard drive. Purdue then went down and scored a touchdown, picked off Tanner Morgan again. That's all she wrote. And mercifully, finally, (laughs) had the willingness to run the ball when they were protecting the lead late. Now, granted, part of that is that they may have found their guy at last in Maccabee. Um, which they really haven't had since DJ Knox to carry over from the previous regime. So that they may have finally resolved their running back situation with a freshman walk-on. Like, I don't know, especially given that Aiden O'Connell himself was once formerly a walk-on. I don't know. Wasn't Xander Horvath also a walk-on? Yeah, it's just like and Charlie Jones originally at Buffalo was also a walk-on. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, talk about stolen valor. I mean, at Nebraska and with like a lot of teams in the Big Ten West fancy themselves as the crown princes of a walk-on right now, I don't think anybody's holding a candle to Purdue. <laughs> nope. Which is just such a strange thing. Like, you would never make that connection. Because, yeah, it's fair to say that even if Doru comes back, he's they're never, not, he's never been a feature back. No, they've tried, and he's... I he's, a, like, he's a nifty gadget in the passing game. He's capable enough as a receiver. <laughs> they mostly... I, He's never been effective against the Big Ten caliber defense. He he cannot he he just can't really stand up between the tackles. Is no, the thing. He, he's not going to make yardage. He's kind of more of a slot receiver, to be honest. I don't. That's kind of what I've always gotten from him. Hume is that good of a pass catcher, but again, like it's not to dog on the guy too much. It's just saying that it's always funny how well, dude, they've been trying to count on for years. He's had injuries in the past. He's injured now. Um, 
that they had to reach so far down to the depth chart and end up pulling out a diamond. It's just it's weird how things work out sometimes. So yeah, Purdue. I mean, and Purdue held Minnesota to forty-seven rushing yards. I'm not. I'm. You know what? Yes, I'm not disputing that. I was just saying, like big picture, we're not we're not talking again yet, Jeff. Like this doesn't make things okay after that Penn State game. It's gonna take a little. More, it's gonna take more than beating a team with an awful offense for me to forgive what you did against Penn State. But I'm, you know what? It's an open. It's a continuing dialogue, and I'm willing to listen. You're not talking to him directly, right? You're talking to your intermediary to send that message to him. Yeah. So anyway, it's time to talk about the afternoon games. I don't know how clearly that grumble is going to come across. Um, yeah, so I'll preface the discussion of the Michigan State-Maryland game by saying that I truly, truly, truly do not understand why anyone runs the ball against this Michigan State team, especially burning eight downs in two goal-to-go situations. Dan Enos is the worst play caller in the conference and you cannot convince me. Otherwise. Was he? Was or was he a sleeper agent? Non Brian Ferentz division. Or was he a sleeper agent that whose know. influence on the game was simply not powerful enough? I, I given that he was a D'Antonio assistant, I kind of think those loyalties are probably thinned out. But what I'm talking about here is that in two goal to goal situations, Maryland tried to stuff it in between the tackles eight times and failed all eight. Turned it over on the goal line twice and turned what. Should have been a 40-plus point day for their offense, almost 500 yards, into a mere 27 points in a game that should not have been that close. But on the other hand, Michigan State left seven points on the field in the kicking game just in the first half, so it could have been closer. Like, uh, in terms of this, the performance for Michigan State, this team is so disjointed, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. So this defense would have been bad to begin with. They're still very injured missing five starters. They don't have the depth to generate any pass rush, missing three starting defensive linemen. Their secondary was always going to be terrible, but they're also missing their best player back there. It's a mess on defense. Coaches came out again and said it's a game of inches. And I'm like, well, yes, technically, if you're 12, if, if there's no defensive back within 12 yards of a tight end when he catches the ball on the sideline, that is technically measurable in inches. Well, yes, that is. That's uh. <laughs> How many inches were they away on that play? <laughs> so, this is great audio, as Steve does the conversion. <laughs> I'm not trying to distract him, but we can't have dead air here, so I have to keep. 428 things. inches. That's all we got to do to cover a tight end on third and long is to have somebody less than 428 inches away from him. So it's yeah. You know, at this point, it's a little bit of a comedy of errors. It, I, I believe over the course of the season, I'm going to have many arguments with people in my fan base who claim this is all on Tucker at this point when really what it's... That math is wrong. I don't care to correct it. Yeah. Anyone who's going to correct us, those replies will go to you. So again, that's... I was told there would be no math. This is a this is a sports... We do sports here. This is, Man, this ain't some baseball podcast where we're going to talk analytics right now. Congratulations to you on Tony LaRusso officially being shit camped. Woo! No, he, he retired. But look, look, look. Old people gave him a lot of credit. Old baseball people gave him a lot of credit for admitting in his statement that he maybe didn't do as good of a job with the White Sox as he should have done. You think? Yeah, well, 
as good a job as he should have done would have them winning the division by 20 games. So anyway, uh, would be remiss not to cover other regional sports topics of interest. But yeah, what I think has become clear is that last season was definitely more of a mirage and unsustain like an unsustainably best case scenario. Well, let's put it this way. At the beginning of August, Michigan State launched something called NF Tux. I was really hoping we wouldn't have to talk about that. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to talk. The about only it. reason I'm bringing it up I'm is because launching oh, NFTs in the second half of 2022 <laughs> sure does show a strong commitment to pretending that 2021 will last forever. What I would say is there's no indication that they're losing any momentum on the recruiting trail because of it. That's pretty firmly. I mean, like think back to last year even how far away they were from being competitive with Ohio State. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think at that time, Tucker probably knew, this is some bullshit we're pulling here, but it's fun while it lasts. So, yeah, that they got an 11-win Peach Bowl season, mostly on the back of Kenneth Walker, but he didn't play defense. Like, they they had some smoke and mirrors on both sides of the ball. I think probably made people forget what a shambles this roster was left in by the previous regime. I'm going to say it as many times as I have to. Antonio did a bad job his last couple years. He left a mess behind. That does not change his overall legacy. There should still eventually be a statue of him somewhere outside the stadium, but we don't do that, really. Um, but anyway, at, at the risk of rehashing that whole conversation, yeah, it's this is the least complimentary team I've ever seen. So they come out of the gate, and it looks just like it did against Minnesota and Maryland. Defense is powerless, cannot stop anything. No pass rush, no coverage. They're okay against the run, but the opponents quickly realize we don't have to run the ball. Uh, picking up third down after third down, converting multiple fourth downs, scoring on their first two possessions. Um, offense actually looked like it was game to keep up at first, but then receivers started dropping balls. I counted nine drops by the receivers over the course of the Three by your boy, Barker, speaking of sleeper agents. Oh, boy. Um, and Jaden Reed, who... The coach has been saying the I'm coaches sorry. have been Wolf. saying yeah, the coaches have been saying all year that he's not hundred percent. It's like if he's far enough away from hundred percent that he's <clears> dropping <throat> four passes in a day, three of which he should have caught. Maybe he needs rest. Maybe he shouldn't be playing. They got a lot of other receivers who are very good. Show me more of Jeremy Bernard. They're playing Terrell Henry on special teams. Get him in the game on offense. Like First, show me these guys that you recruited. Michigan State did of course score a touchdown to come uh within one. But it would have it, it would have been a go-ahead if not for a missed field goal earlier in the first quarter. Yeah. And the first three touchdown drives for Maryland were 93, 85, and 80 yards. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the fact that they have some competence on offense and that I kind of like I actually like the I think that the offensive play calling made a necessary correction. They went pass first pretty early in this game. A lot of people in the fan base are saying that Peyton Thornton does not have, or Thornton does not have what it takes to carry this team. Again, I submit 
Nine drops by my count. If you want to tack up a couple of those to being balls that are too difficult for college players to catch, well, a couple of these guys plan on playing in the NFL, do they not? Um, I don't think any quarterback at the college level is going to be able to do much when his run game has very little success and his receivers are dropping nine balls. So, like Basically, you could argue that Lamar Jackson could have succeeded in this situation. Well, yeah. But, like, <laughs> that's, that's a tenuous <laughs> argument at best and not really relevant to the point. And if you need Peyton Thorne to be Lamar Jackson, then things have pretty fundamentally gone wrong. Especially because that means you're Bobby Petrino now. Yeah, and so the other buttons that they're pushing, because they're so opaque, I can't make sense of what they're doing. So they're kicking situation, right? Longtime kicker Matt Coughlin finally is out of eligibility. They have a true freshman in Jack Stone coming in, and then very late in the season, like right, like mid-fall camp, I think, they're bringing a transfer from Auburn, Ben Patton. Stone starts off the season as a kicker. He's kind of shaky. Like, his first kick was real bad, but, you know, he's a freshman, whatever. Uh, you expect maybe they'll give him a little bit of a leash. Then it's like, oh, is he kind of hurt? Like, they're talking about him like he might not be healthy. And so they send Patton out there, and he misses a 33-yarder wider than I've ever seen somebody miss a kick that short. And then Stone comes back in, and they have a PAT that's fucked up because the long snapper screws it up. Because those two kickers kick with different feet, so that kind of changes the trajectory. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Patton's left-footed. That feels it feels like something that the coaching staff should have been aware of. I think they were. I mean, they were aware, aware but just I like know. I can't say that that's what caused the bad snap or not. But then later they try another field goal and completely like they just let a guy. Through untouched to block the kick. It was the easiest block. It feels like seen. something has happened to the Michigan State kicking unit specifically, basically. But like since last week. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have a lot of opportunities against Minnesota or Washington, but they didn't look like they had no idea what was going on. So, they, yeah, there's there's clearly some stuff going on here. I, like, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, I'm not saying that they should be a whole lot better than they are because... I have not lost sight of exactly the roster turnover situation they were in. I'm willing to cut them less slack on that than I normally would have, though, because they work the portal more aggressively than anybody. They did pick an awful lot of these guys. But still, there's, there's like, something doesn't feel right here. I don't know what it is. 432 inches. My God. Anyway... Does the yeah. does 489 total yards mean anything to you? Would you have preferred that they got another 11 or so just to have one more figure for that 500 yard? Ju- yeah, just to make it clear that this game was not actually as close as it was. Just you know, because because then it's one of those things where you know they'll show on the screen, oh, like this many you know defensive performances with 489 yards or more, and it's like you know that one of them was a 489 <laughs> yard game. Yeah, exactly they just wanted remember. to include one more data point. Where does it feel like Michigan State's ceiling is? Ceiling this year, six or seven wins. Maryland's ceiling might not be that much higher, just because there is a really hard, there's a really hard cap on what you can do in that division. Well, they already played and lost to Michigan. You don't expect them to beat Ohio State or Penn State, so that takes them to four and three. Then they have games against. Penn State, I wouldn't completely rule out. Yeah, I, I suppose not. But even I'm for the sake of this exercise, though, even yeah. if you want to say that Penn State's a likely loss, those are, I mean, like, Ohio State's the only game that feels like it would be a real shock if they went up. Again, with these receivers, 
if they get if they get over the Daninos of the coordinating thing, um, this has this this offense has a very high ceiling. Um, I can't say I, I I'm not going to read your result against Michigan State to mean anything right now. Their pass rush is so injured that they're not going to get any pressure on a quarterback with a decent line in front of them. Any quarterback at this level who doesn't have any pressure on him can make all the throws. You'll get to this level if you can't. So I don't want to read too much into it, but we've seen big-time performances from Tango Bailoa before. Jarrett looked no worse for the wear coming back from his injury. And Maryland did have a pretty deep and functional stable of running backs, too. Roman Henby is the only guy who's gotten much credit, but, man, Antoine Littleton is a truck. Um, and they still rotate in Kobe McDonald a little bit. Like, they've got a few guys who can provide a compliment um, they're definitely still more of an outside running game. Like that's kind of their philosophy. That's kind of what their philosophy has always been under Loxley. And I don't think they quite have a guy like an Anthony McFarland on hand in terms of a firecracker home run threat, but they have a couple of big dudes who can move. Um, combine that with what they're capable of with their weapons. And yeah, this is a good offense. Like what is the rest of their schedule? I'd, I'd be, I forget who their crossovers are. They play Purdue next week. I know that. So, I mean, probably game of the week in the conference. Really. Yeah, I, that's that's going to be a really interesting one to watch. You know what one was not very interesting to watch? Penn State 17, Northwestern 7. Now, I predicted in this one, uh, <sighs> quote, this feels like something really stupid happens, like a bunch of stupid things happen, and Penn State trails at halftime, but then Northwestern doesn't score again. It wasn't quite that, but it was like, mm. what I thought was that it was going to be one of those things where it's like, Oh wow, this is really, really stupid. Is there any chance that okay, 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 look. The the it's not that big a gap. Is there any way that, that okay, but they're not gonna pull away. Okay, but Northwestern's not really gonna okay, this what is the they they could have just they could have just forfeited before the game started. <laughs> sure. So normally in a game when you lose five turnovers, you're gonna be in a bad way. Which by the way explains the failure to cover here by Penn State. But Northwestern gave three of them back just in the first half. Weather conditions ruined the game from a flow standpoint. I I don't know how many, like, I have no sense of what the demographic breakdown of our listenership is, how many of our folks are Penn State listeners. If we have a lot of them, they probably feel that we treat them unfairly because we're both very critical of James Franklin as a game manager a lot of the time. And look, if you're being fair, you would admit a lot of the time he earns that. But I want it to be noted that I did have some confidence in their performance in this game. How do I manifest my confidence? I manifest it in our degenerate college fantasy picking. And so in JMC, I picked the Penn State defense. What do you do with a powerless opposing offense? You gave up a broken long touchdown to Ryan Holinsky. So I was deprived of a shutdown that I could have had by playing one of two or three other options I had first in mind. Was that my only vote of confidence in your team? Nay! I also played Nick Singleton, reasoning that Northwestern's offense, or defense rather, has been a shadow of its former self, especially against the run. He That Singleton is by far the most talented offensive player on your offense, perhaps other than Drew Aller. And that the conditions would certainly push Penn State to the ground and encourage them to run the ball constantly. And I was right. 17 first half carries for 76 yards and two touchdowns. And also two fumbles, which resulted in his benching for the rest of the day. Ooh, I'm he only seeing one touchdown. Maybe it was only one. I don't remember. Yeah, that sounds right, because he only got like 13 points from me. But anyway, 
Yeah, right. I, I just wished that it was two touchdowns or one fumble. So I placed plenty of confidence in Penn State for a dominating performance today, and you failed me. You have cost me points and imaginary money in our no-stakes league. And for this, I am granting myself free license for the next three seasons to criticize James Franklin's game management as I see fit. You have committed the ultimate sin. You have disappointed me in <laughs> fantasy football. And so I exile you into the Saquon Barkley dimension, into the Allen Robinson dimension, into the... Oh my god, they're both Penn State guys! <laughs> so, really... Oh my... It all, it's... It's... I, dude, I am, I am absolutely Charlie Day going over to the blackboard with Pepe Sylvia, and it's just Franklin circle. It's like, it's... <laughs> Penn State, Penn State, got box of all Penn State players disappointing me. This game was played in a bit of a freezing monsoon, if I'm not mistaken. I understand the conditions were miserable, yes. And as a result, that meant probably the team that scores first, especially the first team to take a two-possession lead, is going to run the ball the rest of the way, which means that if you're the team that falls behind, here's the two things you're going to do. You're going to sell out against the run because even if you do that, they're still going to run the ball because you could turn the ball over on absolutely any throw in this game. And the second thing you're going to do is what you got to do on offense when you're down two scores. You got to throw. So here's what happened is Penn State only threw it 20 times. Ryan Holinsky went 15 for 37. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about the most Holinsky-ass box line. So there's... He and, he and Spencer Petrus occupy similar places where they so often end up throwing for high volume because their offenses suck, so they're playing from behind. But they're bad, so they complete well under half of their passes for very middling yardage, usually with at least one turnover when they do end up finally having to press it and get aggressive. It's, it's just like, Polinski's numbers are usually bigger because uh, Northwestern tends to fall behind faster because their defense is crap. It's just... I hate that I know this about the... I hate that I can listen to those numbers you gave and be like, what a Holinsky-ass box score. That's not something that should occupy, like... But also, 15 for 37 for 210 yards, a touchdown and a pick. Knowing that information, I bet there's, there's like, a memory of a sunset over Lake Superior, like, being pushed out of my head by that. Like, what the heck? I only remember so many things, and I have to know what a characteristic Ryan Holinsky box score is. Come on, man. Yeah, 58 carries. I guess I don't know if this is sack adjusted, but Penn State surely put it to the ground over 50 times in this game. Yeah. Even, so even this game was ball. fundamentally over at halftime because, again, the game script played out in hopeless ways for Northwestern because they weren't going to be able to... They committed a lot of resources to stopping the run, but they didn't do it enough to give their offenses enough chances. However, no amount of chances for their offense were going to be enough because 15 for 37, man. Right. Right, completing well under half of your passes for, again, not significant yardage. Dumb game. Props to everybody that actually stayed through the entire thing. Oh, yeah, you're an absolute hero if you were in the stands for the end of that one. I'm not going to give Penn State fans credit very often, because it's really easy to show up for a winner, but <laughs> it's not that easy to stay the entire way Yeah, especially in conditions like that cold and rainy. against an opponent about whom nobody cares. All right. Rutgers 10, Ohio State 49. This game had one more fight between the coaches than it had moments of genuine on-field drama. Scene. Late in the, was it fourth quarter? Did we figure that out? Um, I believe. It's a 39-point Ohio State lead. They have the ball. It is fourth down. 
They line up in a punt formation. They do not punt. They pick up the fake. And as the punter is running out of bounds, Aaron Cruikshank, who had been lined up as a returner, very unhappy with Ohio State's decision to fake up 39 points, flies into the frame at full speed with the punter already way out of bounds and absolutely obliterates him, which causes a little bit of a dust-up. The angry pointing, and Shiano comes hustling over. He said after the game to try to defuse things. That does not seem fitting in the character of Greg Shiano. But anyway, leads to the much pointing and angry, gesticulating and harsh words exchanged between Shiano and Ryan Day, who were, of course, once fellow coordinators on the staff of Urban Meyer. You see where both of them got it. They learned by watching you. They ended up making up after the game, saying, yeah, it's all under the bridge, we're fine. Very easy to do when one guy has been thoroughly defeated and the other has thoroughly defeated him. Anyway, Ohio State didn't cover. That's about all I was to say about this. So what, like, you're in the press conference, you get defeated 49-10, to and it's like, Coach Giano, are you sorry? No, I'm still mad. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. Are you going to do it again? No. (laughs) Hey, you think you got something to say to Coach Day right now? Coach Day... I'm sorry. He's saying it to us. It feels like you need to say it to him. <laughs> so, I compare Ohio State a lot to, you know, because when you play Dynasty mode in the EA Sports game often enough, you find yourself winning every recruiting battle and just dominating schools to the point where it's like, all right, so which of my receivers needs more, like, like which of my <laughs> players needs more of this to get this award? So, I feel like Ohio State approaches games like that. All right. Who do I want to give stats to today? It was Mayan Williams today who got five rushing touchdowns on 21 carries. As his manager in the off-tackle Empire League, I very much appreciate it. A day when Braylon Allen, again, got me 0.2 points. And CJ Stroud had 22 attempts. I mean, yes, you generally expect if you're going to win a game 49-10 to 10, that your quarterback's not going to throw it a lot. But we've seen Ohio State sling it all over the field with a five-touchdown lead for yeah. no apparent reason. God knows the margin didn't stop him from running it up for Stroud against Toledo for some reason. So, like... That, Fucking Toledo. That'll Show teach, them. That'll teach him. Take that, Toledo! How dare you be in our state? As though they're ever winning any of those meaningful conflicts with Ohio State. The, uh, right. uh, oh, oh, no. I guess it's because Toledo was technically the trophy for that brief war that the militias of Ohio and Michigan fought, and so Toledo's existence reminds them of that time they didn't beat Michigan. Well, no, they did, in a sense. No, 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 I mean, on the football field last year. At the time, Toledo was the prize, not the thing that you give to whichever militia loses the war. Yeah, yeah, and the mere consolation prize of the entire Upper Peninsula. What a ripoff. <laughs> but anyway, finally we get to it. The main event, the big card of the week, Indiana at Nebraska, had to be under the lights. You knew they were going to do it. Been circled since before the season even began. Interim coach Mickey Joseph certainly had Nebraska playing a lot better. Um, looks basically like what I thought Nebraska would look like at the beginning of the season. Yeah, if you look at this game on paper and you don't know anything about these coaches or any of the history or anything like that this is what you'd think this game would look like nebraska kind of broke it open with a huge play from from a a blue chip dual threat quarterback to um you know to to trey palmer very athletic receiver who kind of broke it open with a 71 yard touchdown uh this is what you'd expect the game to look like however 
seen for years now these Scott Frost teams finding ways to lose this game. And I got to believe that if Scott Frost was the coach in this game, they'd have found a way to lose the damn thing. You can't convince me otherwise. I, yeah. I just wouldn't. Yeah. I can't believe it. I mean, it. It very much would have been very much would have been likely. And if you're an Indiana fan, you yep. might be wondering where in the shit did hero mode Connor Bazalek go? Well, to which I would submit probably playing more prepared and opponents. I mean, they caught they caught Illinois in a disorganized <laughs> mess in their first road game. They were against Western Kentucky, which has never been known to have an elite defense. Uh, when he had those first two hero drives. He didn't have a chance to have one against Cincinnati. They got whooped in that one. And ultimately, they just couldn't get it done when they had the chances against Nebraska because Nebraska's got more talent on the roster and they were actually able to... I don't know who he has at defensive coordinator, but he made a change at defensive coordinator (laughs) and they made the plays that they needed to. So, hey, administrative win already for Coach Mickey Joseph. Ho-ho! Get the fuck out of here! Uh, from the Indiana side, this is a sobering reminder that against any team with Big Ten defensive talent, you're not going to run the ball. Your line just isn't good enough to make space. These backs are not going to do it on their own. If you're going to win or lose any games, it's going to be entirely up to Basilak to do it, winging it down the field to receivers who are mostly going to be covered pretty tight because there's not a whole lot of reason for an opposing defense to stack the box. You can defend this run with five or six guys most of the time. And then we're going to talk about what happened to Nebraska's starting left tackle, Turner Corcoran, who picked up a personal foul uh, in the second half of the game and then picked up another one in the fourth quarter for throwing a punch. Uh, Was removed from the field by coach Mickey Joseph and was chastised like a naughty child by the referee who announced that it was indeed a personal foul on number 69 of the offense. That is a 15-yard penalty. Number 69, by his actions, has ejected himself from the game. I had never heard it phrased that. You say that you've heard it phrased that way before. I have never. I, I don't dispute that it has happened, but I've never been lucky enough to be listening when it has. I My face hurt when I was done laughing because of just, just the incredible sanctimony from this ref. Just to, it might, might as well I am it. not ejecting him from the game. He's ejected. He has ejected himself. <laughs> he, yeah. <laughs> I'm not calling a penalty on him. I'm just disappointed. Like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> most no, no, no. Do not blame me. <laughs> he has by his own hand. <laughs> ejected by his own petard. Um, probably the most interesting thing from an officiating perspective on the week, which is, hey, that's good. That's what you want, right? You don't want to remember the refs blowing the big call in the big moment. Um, yeah, by his own, by his actions, has ejected himself from the game. Truly legendary. Around the country, Kansas football continues their inevitable march to a top 10 matchup with Illinois. That's how everyone has predicted it from the beginning. They will host game day for the first time. at. Oh, I knew Kansas would be good next year. I just didn't think Illinois would be functional. Top 10 matchup on the way. Kansas, Illinois, book it. And then as soon, like in the run-up to that, I would imagine wherever they have game day for that, there will be some kind of change in elevation. Um, look ye to the nearest hilltop, for upon it you shall see the four horsemen. Not the Western Kentucky mascot? I mean, one of them might look like that. Actually, yeah, I would be surprised if that wasn't one of them. <laughs> That's got to be famine, right? Uh, uh, 
one of our favorite coaches, <laughs> one of our favorite coaches, Willie Fritz, did some really fun play calling in a 27-24 overtime win over Houston. Uh, the shovel pass he called at the goal line for the game-tying touchdown. Yeah. Brilliant piece of work. I was surprised he didn't go for it on the road to 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 win the game with a two-pointer instead of kicking it, but still ended up winning the game in overtime. Of course. <laughs> you know, they're, of course, avenging a, a... They had a two-win season last year where I started to really... Oh, man. Question everything we believed in. Yeah, but Tulane is 4-1. and one. That pissed-off little wave with its megaphone is... Their next uniforms that miss will be the first. Yep. Every combo is absolutely incredible. Um, and, of course, this being Friday night and the only game that was on, ESPN kept cutting over to frickin' baseball every time Aaron Judge was at bat. And, of course, what's now happened since they've started cutting over to Aaron Judge at bat, he is very apparently feeling the pressure. And pitchers are also not wanting to be the guy who throws the home run to him with everybody looking. So... Usually what happens is he either walks or gets an out. He's had a couple hits, but no home runs. And what happened in this cut-in was the pitcher threw ball one, threw ball two, landed kind of weird, had a mound visit with the trainer that lasted for like seven (laughs) minutes. And so during this game, they had the split screen. On the one screen, with like three minutes left in the football game, Tulane is driving down a touchdown to tie it as time very nearly expires. And on the other screen, there's a bunch of baseball players standing around looking at a pitcher as he sort of like tries to stretch out his hamstring. You could not do a better job advertising why people want to watch college football and not baseball. Or any kind of football or any other sport. It like it, Honestly, side by side, you could not pay a think tank or a pack to come up with a better promo for football and a more vicious attack ad on the entire concept of baseball. I have never seen a political attack ad going that hard in the paint. <laughs> it was it was simply preposterous. And of course, that continued all weekend. They kept interrupt. They interrupted Kentucky Ole Miss to cut over to I think him walking again because again, like pitchers aren't aren't going anywhere near him. Nobody wants to give up the record, which is not a record. He's going for seventh place. But anyway, so Missouri fresh off. Uh, somehow losing to Auburn, took a 13-0 lead on Georgia, which was 16-6 at half, and then blew it um, as, I mean, we knew they would. It was just a matter of how. They made made it close. They made it close for a while, but ultimately they kicked too many field goals. Like, you don't beat a team like Georgia kicking field goals. Well, look, they just wanted to give Harrison Mevis a chance to redeem himself, and redeem himself he did. Just, you know, then they lost the game. Yeah, I suppose. Um, Utah worked over Oregon State. I forgot when I first looked at this that the Pac-12 did away with divisions. I was like, wow, Pac-12 South, very interesting. Utah and USC and UCL. Actually, nope, none of that matters. No, nope, it's going to be no UC, USC, yeah. Utah. Yeah. That's, that's um, all it's going to be. Uh, somewhere in that game, I'll get to this on false starts, but somewhere in that game, someone on the sidelines sported a USC player with their water bottle. <laughs> it's good stuff. I don't think they got flight for it either, which I really appreciate. Like, If you're going to do crime, get away with it. Um, TCU absolutely blasted Oklahoma. Here's the thing about Oklahoma going to the SEC is there at least won't be any mean purple teams there. Like the closest you get is, I don't know, Mississippi State's like a maroon. Um, LSU is purple. LSU is purple. Oh, yeah, I guess. But not one primarily purple. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about them for some reason. (laughs) They're very forgettable these days. Um, South Carolina is like a darn it, but that's not purple, so... Well, all right, so at least you go from two mean purple teams to one. 
No, TCU has been terrorizing Oklahoma since before they were in the Big 12. They like they were, Bob Stoops started a very long winning streak at Norman and so every time somebody brought it up it it, it, it was and the last one was 2005 to TCU. It was like yeah. wait a second at the time they were Mountain West or Conference USA. I don't remember which one. Probably the Mountain West at that time. But it's also it's also like makes sense, right? Because if if you were to come across a hostile horn frog and you wanted to like interact with it at all or move it, I, I don't know what your plan would be. Like look at it. Like you can't touch it. If you get close to it, it squirts blood at you. So now the Big Twelve is interesting. All of a sudden, you know the of course the. The longtime despot of the Big 12 has seemingly been deposed, uh, but now all of the pretenders to the throne keep giving each other losses. Oak State defeated Baylor to remain at the top of the pile for now, but uh, at some point they're going to have to, they're probably going to pick one up. Just determined to return Game of Thrones to cultural prominence, aren't we? What year is it after all? Other games of interest in the SEC, Alabama controlled the game against Arkansas most of the way. The Hogs did rally to make Bama bleed their own blood. Bryce Young was knocked out of the game, and it still didn't matter because Alabama has Jameer Gibbs. So, nope, not a matter. Mississippi um, State beat Texas A&M by three scores. Yeah, I, so I assume Mike Leach probably gets paid mostly in used car parts. Um, absolutely dunked on their jillion-dollar coach in Jimbo Fisher. Yes, I say that unironically as a fan of Michigan State right now. But you know what? At least they didn't give him a trophy literally saying National Champions 20XDX. <laughs> so Georgia Tech beat Pitt. Zombie Georgia Tech. I mean, so, you know, with all the zombie teams walking around, there's also going to be those times that zombie teams beat ranked teams, which, you know, as you'll recall, uh, what was it? Was it Zombie Minnesota after Tim Brewster got ranked Iowa the one time? Probably. Um, so, yeah, that's the first one of those. With all the zombie teams walking around already, it's spooky season. Someone's going to get got. Um Someone else, because, you know, obviously Pitt already did. Kansas uh, decided to display that they also have defense. We already covered them, but still, they held Iowa State to 11 points. I was saying that they were just, you know, kind of doing it with flame-throwing offense with a dual-threat quarterback, but now they decided, no, 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 no. How about this? Let's prove to the committee that we can actually do it the other way. I got really close to playing Jalen Daniels in JMC this week. Like, really close. And... Something just vibed off about him, and then he ended up throwing for like fifty-six yards or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I did not have it did not acquit himself especially well. Anyway, I, I would have been furious if I had like I already got kind of a midland day. You know what? I, I you're furious. you're correct. I was furious. My other quarterback was of course Dylan Gabriel, and uh, Colorado took another multi-score loss. Holy shit! <laughs> have you seen the post going around of their last month of the schedule? Uh, I'm going to investigate it because thus far they've had an, an almost unbelievable, I don't know what the statistic was, but it was something about like how no, like no power five program in the last, however many years has ever lost their first four games by however many scores they've now lost by 25, yeah. 31, 42, uh, 28 and 23. They did fire Carl Durrell after this week's games as well, by the way, that's how we got to. Paul Chris being the fifth head coach, I think he lasted a little bit longer than Durrell, like a couple of hours. 
But anyway. So, well, hey, Arizona was the closest defeat that the Buffaloes have been dealt. Okay. Uh, also, let's see. Yeah, they look, their defense has improved. They allowed 49 hey, folks, three focus games up. ago. Remember when I asked you, last <laughs> month of the schedule. Last month of schedule. What they've got. Oh, my God. <laughs> Home date against currently number 12, Oregon. A visit to number 6, USC. A road trip to 21, Washington. And then a home game against number 11, Utah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. They're going to lose those games by 150 points combined. It's going to be so bad. I, like, again... We saw with Georgia Tech beating Pitt that you get a little bit of a dead cat bounce. You know, Oklahoma's performance against Indiana as well. Sometimes, you know, firing the head coach will cause the team to rally, want to prove themselves, want to, you know, set up their next team, frankly. Uh, what pieces are there for Colorado to do that with? Yeah, that's the thing is you got to have some talent for that to matter. Like, Georgia Tech had some talent. Nebraska has some talent. Colorado doesn't have talent. <laughs> The odds are much more likely that they go winless than that they pick off a couple of teams the rest of the way. Here, I thought we were kind of in an era where we were done with Power 5 teams going winless just because they always schedule themselves wins, and Colorado's going to do it. Yeah, man. It, look, it's the speed with which a roster can both improve or disintegrate. It puts a lot more extreme results on the table. Yep, absolutely. But you, you, you had the, you've had this thing where, again... Generally, the Power Five teams have scheduled themselves wins. Uh, of course, I choose to believe that it's not that that's the reason that we haven't had a, a true winless team in, in in decades in the Big Ten. Uh, it's just that we're better at being bad than everybody else. Not 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 that we're good at being bad, but when we're bad, we're not quite as bad. Well, we're old bad. We've been being bad way longer than everyone else, which means that we're better at it. All these people. These upstarts in the western half of the country it barely been settled as civilization for 150 years. How can you be as established? Well, and they're you know now? they're trying too hard. They're doing all flashy. You know they're going to go through all their shittiness. You know in overnight. You know, and their fans are disinterested. Oh, we're playing games in an empty Rose Bowl. That's how we get to being bad. It's novo bad behavior. It's preposterous. It's a little embarrassing to be honest. Stay in your lane. Be mediocre. It's certainly no decades without beating a certain opponent. Right. I, you know, I would bet there's still... Colorado probably still doesn't have any streaks as long as what Indiana is running against Ohio State and Michigan. So Nope, Ohio State. Oh, that's right. They, they walloped Michigan recently. <laughs> One tends to forget. It's always good to reset those streak odometers, isn't it? Foreshadowing. Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire!